Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. You can see that is the chaos that I have set across my multiple screens here. This is going to be an interesting day. Today is uh, August 9th. It's Wednesday, and we are going to start off a little bit differently. There is something that has just been plaguing me. It actually woke me up early from a dead sleep. Uh, and I'm not talking about my four-year-old daughter who told me that she had a, a nightmare about water filling up the house. There is water filling up our house in this country, and it is starting to get us to a point of drowning. We're going to have to start treading through it. But that's not what's going on right now. I want to go on a little bit of a tangent before we say anything else about any of our sponsors or or anything else gets away from my thoughts. Uh, we had a bombshell drop just a few minutes ago. I had a little bit of a heads up that it was coming from my friends over at Catholic Vote because they do have their fingers on the pulse of what's going on for the Catholic Church in America, and I think you guys are going to definitely want to know what that is, so stick around with us here. Let me go on a little bit of a tirade, if you would, and um, and this is my call to action for people who work for the FBI. There has been a lot of talk for the last maybe two years about the good men and women of the FBI. There has been a little bit of a pushback by guys like Steve Friend, by guys like Garrett Boyle, friends of mine, friends of this show, guys like George Hill. We've all seen the same thing. And we've all been part of the same animal. And so when I say this, it's not from animosity. It is from absolute disappointment. It is from utter disgust that we are looking at a federal agency that is, in fact, the teeth, that is the fangs of a weaponized federal government. The reason why we fixate so much on the FBI in this podcast, it's not just because it's my ex-girlfriend, which is the only way to look at it, a, def a very defective relationship, a dysfunctional situation that existed but it's a, a relationship that is rotting and hurting the entire American people. It is doing significant damage to the ability to have rule of law in this country, to the ability of those of us to live freely without any fear. You heard yesterday from Steve Baker. He's an independent journalist. He's a musician. He's a guy who grew up trying to fight the Soviet Union uh, in the ways that he could behind the Iron Curtain. If you didn't listen to our show yesterday, you missed out on some of the stories that he had to tell about working through a ministry group to undermine what we all knew was the enemy in the 70s and the 80s, uh, in the beginning of the 90s. Russia was always the problem. And Russia has actually failed. They failed to continue. They fell under the weight of their own tyranny of trying to repress the population. And then you hear guys like Steve Baker, you hear guys like Matt Taibbi, who I listened to when I was in Memphis, talking about all the similarities that exist between this federal government and the one that we used to fight in the Soviet Union. Both those guys spent a lot of time over there. And when they start seeing those parallels, the weaponized law enforcement, the secret police, people living in fear of speaking, those are un-American. They're un-American situations on every level. There's no way around it. So I wanna talk about what corruption looks like. And corruption looks like putting your head down and doing your job. That's what it looks like. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about Reserve Police Battalion 101, that sort of a great story that tells us it's a it's a cautionary tale for all law enforcement and federal officials, for all people that are involved in minor government work. You're not the top of the chain. You're the rank and file. You're the people that carry out the orders. And you're the ones that killed off toddlers and old people because they were too slow getting into the boxcars. That's the people. And we want to know, uh, are, are we in a society that has moved past that? Have we all figured out that? I don't think so. That's not what I saw. What I see is a failure to accept a very simple calling, which is that you have an oath to a constitution and that constitution is the undermining document that, that, that undergirds the society that we live in, the constitutional republic of the United States of America. And that's what I swore to. I didn't swear to the FBI. I don't care about the FBI. I never did. It wasn't about the FBI, nor should it be. It shouldn't be about the DOJ, if that's who you work for. It shouldn't be about the Commerce Department or the, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of the Interior. You don't work for those agencies. That's just who pays you. That's just what name is on your check. You work for the American people. So this is a call to action for all those people that are working out in the federal government that said, it's not me. I'm not the problem. And also for all of you retired types. I know retired types listen to this podcast. I know the FBI Security Division listens to this podcast. And moreover, I know that the Civil Rights Division unit chief at headquarters in the Hoover building was recommended my podcast yesterday because someone reached out and let me know that that recommendation was made. And I'm confident they won't take it, but that's all right. This is for all of you that are paying attention. 
We had a Fox News hit on Laura Ingram last night where the discussion of what's wrong with the FBI came up and how the FBI took their eyes off the ball with Charles McGonigal. He was the the uh, special agent in charge of counterintelligence in the New York field office. He was found taking up to $225,000 in cash. It's probably more than that because that's all they know about and that's all they can get to. And he's going to probably put in a sweetheart plea next week. We're going to have his um, his girlfriend, his former girlfriend, on the show in short order. We're going to interview her this afternoon. She's been reaching out to me. She's going to do one podcast, and it's ours, because she knows that we can tell the story, and we'll give her as much time as she needs to. We're going to tell the story of a guy who basically was instrumental in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, who was part of the FBI's apparatus that went after Donald Trump. And the thing that we know that he did was accept money from the Albanians on behalf of Russian oligarchs. I just want that to sink in for a second, just for one second. The guy who was probably the most powerful counterintelligence agent in the FBI, who had access to all the files, all the sources, all the information, the guy who was the special agent in charge of the New York field office, who was arguably the most important counterintelligence official in the FBI, in the biggest field office, the most important field office. Washington Field might say they have all the embassies, but a lot of the big work goes out of New York. A lot of the money comes out of New York, and a lot of the consulate offices are in New York, even though the embassies may be in D.C., that guy, Charles McGonigal, who we've talked about with uh, our friend Steve Gray, who's a former agent from New York field office, that guy accepted bags of cash, literally brown paper bags with cash money in it on behalf of a Russian oligarch and used his authority also to run an investigation against Donald Trump. Just sink that in. And where's the round condemnation about that? Uh, if, if some of you remember the 80s, we had guys like Aldridge Ames go and die in prison. We've got people like... Uh, We've got people like Robert Hansen, who was an FBI special agent who was selling us out to the Russians. He died in prison this year. That's what he did. They put him in a supermax. He got to hang out with people like the Unabomber in solitary for his whole life. He got fat and he died in prison because of his crimes against this country. So why is a guy out on his own recognizance walking around? I get it. You're innocent until proven guilty, but you don't think that's a flight risk? You don't think that there's a problem when you've been accepting six-figure sums, which is, by the way, the transactional amount of money that happens when we deal with espionage. In fact, there's actually amount of money that's too much, and there's amount of money that's too little to receive when we do an uh, espionage investigation. And the amount of money, $85,000 at a time, that's right in the sweet spot. That's right where it is. It's like $40,000 to $100,000 is kind of the going rate for selling secrets and access. And this guy had some weird connection to Hunter Biden. I'm sure that's just a total coincidence that their kids played lacrosse together. Okay. And we're going to get in deep in the interview, even deeper, um, to the fact that so many of these FBI senior officials are so compromised. And part of it's because they run around on their, their spouses. It's about sexual misconduct. Charles McGonigal had, had this woman who we're going to be interviewing. She was a mistress in, in many ways. She was his girlfriend in New York, but his family lived outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland in Chevy Chase. And that's pretty common, too. These senior FBI officials that go and live on the seventh floor, it's a temporary post for them. They know they're going to come back, so they might move their family to D.C., but they'll go take a post somewhere else for a year, 18 months, or two years. And they'll pick up another life and another girlfriend and start sleeping with a special assistant or some other special agent in the office, somebody else's spouse. They don't care. They'll use government planes and, and have hookups on there. And they were credible allegations when we found out in December of last year that one of the uh, the Office of Inspector General reports came back and said conclusively that a senior FBI special agent in charge running one of the field offices was involved in sexual misconduct, including having sex in a government vehicle. And the question was, who was it amongst my friends inside the bureau? We could identify at least three special agents in charge of field offices that had been involved in that activity, one of which was on a plane. That person no longer works for the FBI and is now working in a very cush government job. That's what they all do. They all retire with their with their uh, integrity, with their honor intact because they're never named. They all go off and they get to, to hang out in these cush government gigs. They go off to be uh, partners in senior law firms. They go off to be partners in, um, in, in facilities like uh, big tech, or they go off and become big partners in the auditing and the accounting and the consultant firms that spend a lot of money with government or get paid a lot of money by government. So that's where they go. And they're all okay with it. I want you to think about this. If you're a retired FBI agent and you're listening to this podcast, there are basically two possibilities right now. Either you condemn the FBI the way that it is set up and you acknowledge that the Bureau is beyond saving because of the actions of the Bureau or you're part of the problem. 
We're going to play a video in just a second of somebody who can't do that. And maybe he'll change his tune when he thinks about this. Maybe he'll see this because there's enough people out there that will forward it out there. Let me just say, there are two reasons why FBI agents do not admit that there's a problem. Number one, they are dependent on the reputation of the FBI for their own reputation to matter. It's the thing they spent their whole life doing, 20, 25 years. And I am empathetic to that. That is a sad state of affairs. But if you want to get out in front of it, you get out in front of it right now. And you call out the enemy for what it is, which is that it has cheapened your reputation, that it is an atrocious action, it is a betrayal of the American people's trust, and it wasn't your fault because you are willing to at least say it and get behind it. That's part one. And the second reason why you may not do so is because you are unable to acknowledge how complicit you were in the fact that the FBI fell apart when it did. Because every single person that would complain to me, all the senior agents with 20 and 25 years in, guys who are pushing the extensions to their mandatory retirement dates, they would all complain about how the FBI got like it was. And nobody looked into their own heart and said, what did I do? Did I step up into management? Did I take the bite the bullet and go do that thing? Did I call out malfeasance when it was there? Was I willing to accept discomfort when it needed to be dis accepted? To lose the promotions and, and lose maybe some of the friendships by saying the thing out loud that everybody was thinking quietly or spoke about over a beer but didn't say in the office? Because the only thing that happens when you get a couple FBI agents together, and I know a bunch of them, whenever they get together, it only takes about 10 minutes before the pile on of all the errors and failings of the FBI come out. And you know it too. If you're watching this and you work for the Bureau, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You were all part of those conversations. It's time to get active because the pit bull is running around and biting children in the neighborhood. It is taking out people that had nothing to do with it. And it is failing at its fundamental core actions. It is absolutely failing. I put a little note down here about the suspendables. Many of you guys are uh, aware of my friends. We call ourselves the suspendables. Many of you are suspendables as well. And so I wrote down a note. What is a suspendable? Are you suspendable? We can hashtag it if you like. Are you suspendable? It's, trend it's, it's had a couple of trending moments. A suspendable is someone who knows that freedom is dangerous, that liberty comes at a cost, that your future is worth sacrificing your temporary comfort for, and that God doesn't ask you to do what's easy. He demands that you do what is right. That's what a suspendable is. And in religious terms, that's referred to as a martyr. You're willing to put things on the line for what you believe is correct and right. Now, there are two different types of martyrdom, and I learned about this well after I got involved and started speaking out. There is red martyrdom, and there is white martyrdom. Many of you are familiar with the early Christians and what a red martyr is. A red martyr is someone that gives up their life for their faith, who dies because they refuse to denounce their faith. And we're familiar with the apostles doing that. They were, some of them crucified upside down because they didn't think they were fit to die the way that Jesus did. Okay? This is part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. This is part of the Christian tradition. This is part of Western society's tradition. You stand up for your faith, and sometimes you are burned at the stake, you are dismembered, and you are killed for it. That is red martyrdom. Not everyone is asked to be a red martyr. In fact, it's actually quite rare in our, in our current society. But white martyrdom is something that many people will be called to. And a lot of you answered that call, and you've got that opportunity in 2020. We're going to be talking about it throughout the show. White martyrdom is when you give up your comforts, you give up your social standing, when you give up the paycheck, when you give up your safety net inside society because you do what is correct, because what is asked of you is difficult and other people don't acknowledge it. And you know that and you do it anyway. And that is a suspendable. The suspendables are white martyrs. They're not asking for your sympathy. They're not asking for your permission. They didn't even ask for anyone to come to their aid per se. They just said, this is wrong and I will not allow it. Everybody in the FBI right now needs to be a white martyr. The agency cannot survive and this country does not survive with a weaponized FBI. I've said it over and over again because a secret police is antithetical to the American public. It is absolutely unacceptable to have this sort of thing happening. You cannot be quiet. You cannot sit still and you cannot just put your head down and follow orders. I said this in October of 2021, to the deputy assistant director of human resources. That most likely was the end of my FBI career. I let them know that the people in Nuremberg hung for exactly what he's doing. The superior orders claim, I'm just doing what I'm told. That man has been rewarded from that post. He is now the special agent in charge of the Las Vegas field office, which is a pretty cush gig. People like it. And he's there now. All right. You want to know what this is about? This is about whether or not you care more about your pension than you care about this country. And you are deciding it every single day. I just left one of the other bureau chat groups I was in. There was 78 people in a lawsuit with me. I don't want to hear what they have to say. I don't care. I don't care at all. And if that hurts your feelings, it should. 
It should hurt your feelings because it is absolutely insulting to me that you continue to go to jobs and ask me, hey, can you send me the Suspendables logo? I want to print something on the government laser printers and engrave some cups that I have because I'm a Suspendable too. Time to suck it up, Buttercup. It's time to be part of the solution. And the solution says, this is not okay. Let's go to video clip number four, if you would. I want you guys to have this fresh in your mind, and we're about to read something out. And then we'll say thanks to Catholic Vote, because Catholic Vote called this to my attention last night. Ryan, if you've got video clip number four queued up, let's run that for a few seconds and hear what Chris Ray had to say about Catholics in the field offices and how many field offices were involved. What's the difference between a traditional Catholic and a radical traditional Catholic? Uh, I'm not a, an expert on the, the Catholic uh, orders. Well, your FBI wrote a memo talking about radical traditional Catholics. I'm just wondering if you can define it for us. Well, what I can tell you is you're referring to the Richmond product, which was a single product by a single field office, which as soon as I found out about it, I was aghast and ordered it withdrawn and removed from FBI systems. You were aghast. Then why won't you let us talk to the people who put it together? We are working on finishing an internal review into what happened We have there. to wait. The, we, the Congress, and the American people have to wait until you do an internal review. It's not a criminal investigation going on here. An internal review before we can talk to the people who wrote this? That's good right there. We, when we finish our internal review, which will be very soon, Let's we will come, right come back idea, before the committee so going to provide a briefing on what we found. He's going to go ahead and, and make excuses. And you heard it. And he said, that is one field office and one product that was written. I'm going to read from a, uh, an article that just came up right now. This is something that was dropped by Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee. This is why we were delayed starting today. Are you ready? Here it is. From the Congress of the United States House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary. This is issued on August 9th, 2023 to the Honorable, I think that is definitely a facetious term at this point, Chris A. Ray, Director, FBI. 935 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C. Twenty. 535 is the zip code. I used to write this on all my things. This is the address that I used to give for work when I used to fill out my documentation. Where do you work? You want a mortgage? Where do you work? I work at 935 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest. That's the Hoover building, folks. Dear Director Ray, the Committee on the Judiciary is committed and continuing oversight of the FBI assessment of traditional Catholics as potential domestic terrorists. Sorry, I fudged that just a little bit. I'm going to keep going. From information recently produced to the committee, we now know that the FBI relied on information from around the country. One field office. That's what he just said. One product. Let's keep going. Including a liaison contact in the Portland field office. And reporting from the FBI's Los Angeles field office. Now, I don't know about you, but does that sound like the Richmond field office, which is in Virginia? That's on the East Coast. Now we're talking about two different West Coast cities. To develop its assessment. This new information suggests that the FBI, the use uh, that the FBI's use of law enforcement capabilities, we keep using those words, law enforcement capabilities, to intrude on the inconsistencies with your previous testimony before the committee, giving this startling new information, we write to request additional information to advance our oversight. We're going to ask for more sternly worded letters. That's what this that's what this group does. For months, we've sought information related to the FBI's document generated by the Richmond Field Office dated January 23rd, 2023, entitled Interests of Racially or Ethnically Motivated Violent Extremists in Radical Traditionalist Catholic Ideology Almost Certainly Presents New Mitigation Opportunities. Some of you may remember that. Some of you may remember that document because I wrote the piece on it, because I exposed it, because one of the people that works in the FBI, who, by the way, has been removed for being my friend, one of the people who saw that thought it was a problem and brought it to Congress directly to this committee. And then we wrote a piece about it. I wrote a piece about it because I was part of that chain and I exposed it to the media and it had me on Tucker Carlson and a bunch of other places. That's not why it was important. It wasn't important because of me. It was important because the FBI has walked into sacrosanct areas of First Amendment protected activities. And this is unacceptable. That is not what this government is allowed to do. The Constitution is a leash. We have a republic. If we can keep it, we will get there. I promise you, we'll get to that. Federalist Papers 51 is where we're going at the end of this. So just pay, pay attention. Stay with me here. On April 10th, as a result of the FBI's failure to voluntarily request our, uh, to, to comply with our request, the committee issued a subpoena relating to this document. On July 17th, we wrote to you noting that the FBI had failed to substantially improve its compliance with the subpoena and that they may seek uh, contempt proceedings. They were going to hold Chris Ray in contempt. And in doing so, they found out that even though he testified that the actions of the FBI were limited to a single field office, I'm going to start paraphrasing. This is too wordy here. 
You testified to the committee that in the document cited reporting an FBI Portland liaison contact with indirect access who informed on a deceased uh, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremist subject who had sought out mainline Roman Catholic community and then instead gravitated towards the Society of St. Pius X. And in addition, the document noted how FBI undercover employees with direct access reported on a subject who attended this SSPX, that's the Society of St. Pius X, affiliated church, the name of which is redacted, in California, the location of which is redacted, for over a year prior to his relocation. That means that they moved the source, it sounds like, and that person was reporting to the Washington field office and initiated an investigation into the RMVE subject. And most concerning is that this produced uh, a document that explicitly states the Richmond field office coordinated with FBI Portland in preparing the assessment that it released a domain awareness product. And thus it appears that both the FBI Portland and FBI Los Angeles field offices were directly involved or contributed to the contribution, uh, the creation of the FBI's assessment on traditionalist Catholics as potential domestic terrorist threats. So that looks like, if not a direct lie, it is certainly a lie of omission. And that is the way that we hide. That's the way the FBI director hides. Behind words that have specific meanings. He said that product was only developed by one field office. That sounds false. That sounds like perjury. And will they go after him? Probably not. Do we have any expectation? No. So whose job is it then to watch the watchers other than those who have done the job, those who have done the watching? It is time for you to step the hell up. If you worked for the FBI and you see this director and think that he is the empty suit that everybody who works there does, do your duty. Your oath does not expire until you do, as Steve Friend is liking, likes to say. It's time to step up and do it. I am so sick of this, and it made me furious when I heard this last night. We're going to play a video. Uh, this is video clip number one. This came from Fox News. Ryan had to do some work to grab it off their website. We're going to play it. This is from Ingram, uh, Laura Ingram. And this is a former FBI assistant director. This is one of the people on the inner circle. They are on the way up. He retired that way. He's probably a really decent guy. He seems like a nice man. And he seems like a man who is unwilling to call out the agency that he worked for. You listen for the condemnation. I'll wait for it as well. Ryan, if you want to play video clip number one. Joining us now is Chris Swecker, former assistant FBI director. Chris, when I first read this, I thought it was one of those, you know, onion headlines or I was just being punked because it was so hilarious. You cannot make this up at this point. You really can't. I mean, the irony, the FBI are the spy catchers. The CIA are our spies. So we're supposed to be catching this guy. And he's the guy that's investigating Trump. It's, it's beyond ironic. You know, I, I wonder sometimes, Laura, well, not sometimes, that the FBI, whether the FBI just completely took their eye off the ball when, when Jim Comey took over, because this is one of the most important programs in the FBI is to catch spies, prevent them from spying on us, and right in the middle of it, in a, in a high executive level position, and Comey even pr promoted him la later on, is th the very guy that we should be rooting out. Unbelievable. Now, Chris, in a September um, 2020 Senate testimony, the FBI's deputy assistant director, this guy Jonathan Moffa, was asked about the origins of Crossfire Hurricane, and this was back in July of 2016. Specifically, he was asked how he became aware of it, and he said that I received it via email along with a few others from the division. It literally came to me, he said, in my email from Charles McGonigal, who was in the division at the time. Now, Chris, <laughs> no wonder there is so much dysfunction over the past decade and now a reservoir of mistrust and distrust of this once really well-respected, generally well-respected um, law enforcement agency. Yeah, this is so hard to talk about. I mean, after 24 years with the Bureau, and, you know, we, we had a, and every now and then we'd, we'd get somebody spying on, you know, with, from within, but nothing like this. You know, we, we live in dangerous times. China is, presents one of the most significant dangers to the United States, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and to have one of our own people supporting them. And, and Laura, Oleg Deripaska is one of the most notorious oligarchs out there. He is on every list, and uh, he was he was working to get him off the sanctions lifts. So I, you know, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by this, and so are my colleagues. We see the FBI hemorrhaging support from people that in the past have been 
100% supportive of the FBI. And, you know, I just, I, the executive leadership is going to have to, I think, just clean house, take a hard look at things and, and see where this organization is and where it wants to go. All right. Yeah, got to break it down and rebuild it. Chris, great to see you. Thank you. The executive leadership needs to clean house and break it down and get this agency where it needs to go. I got a better deal. I'm going to go ahead and make this offer. The executive management needs to fall on their swords. They need to have the thing of honor and they need to ritually disembowel themselves. It's called Sipaku. How about that? How about you look and say you failed? You failed at such a high level that you should not exist anymore and your career is done. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of hearing people, we need to clean house, we need to restructure, we need to go talk to people. Oh, we probably need to have some cultural changes. It needs to be burned to the ground and it needs to have the ground where it was salted so that nothing grows out of it. I'm done with it. And if you're not done with it, you're not paying attention. That man spent 24 years in the agency. They have ruined his reputation of what he did as long as he stays allied with it. And he basically just said the executive management can correct it. Really? That executive management pushed down the same orders to go get COVID shots that Lee Loftus put out. And when we pushed back and said, this is not right, and we have a religious objection, they said basically that you have a duty to the FBI and your religion matters much less. Now, most of us were okay with the idea of being removed. And they, they sent out another option, a compliance purge. And they asked you to stick a hose up your nose or a little a stick up your nose with uh, ethylene oxide on it, which is a known carcinogen. How many times did you take a COVID test out there? Did you take one every 72 hours? Do you know how likely it is that there are going to be some bad, bad downstream effects of it? And why did the FBI ask to do it? Was there science? No. Did they make you go stand in line with a bunch of people who had COVID? Yes, they did. Was it more likely that you were going to contract COVID when you were healthy with no symptoms and bring it back into the office with these stupid tests that were coming in? 100%. You know how I know that? Because I worked in, in medicine. I don't even have to be a genius at that. I don't have to be a doctor. I spent as much time in uh, in biology classes. I took as much biology and microbiology and chemistry as almost any nurse you'll ever deal with. I had all the prereqs to go and do all that kind of stuff. I was ready to go to med school instead of the FBI. That was actually where I thought I was going. And my best buddy who's a doctor calls me doctor. Probably is a joke, but I, still. There's a reason why we knew this was stupid right away. Because it wasn't about health. It was about compliance. And they found everybody who was willing to comply. And that was nearly everybody. And you know all the people who didn't. And it's a very damn small group. They could fit in my studio here. And the studio is only eight feet wide by 10 feet. That's it. We could put them all in here. And the rest of you that are watching this that know. It's time to man the hell up. I am just absolutely fed up with it. There are no good men and women of the FBI. There are only people that are ready to start exposing stuff that are going to start calling it out. You know how to reach me. You can go to my website. It's kyleserafin.com. Hit the contact button. It goes directly to my email and I will get it. And you can mix in with all the mentally ill and the people that are worried about directed energy weapons. And you can send me a message saying, I would like to be put in touch with Congress. I don't need to know what you're disclosing. I don't care. Start disclosing it now. It needs to be exposed. It's not your information, and it's not the FBI's information. And Congress, you need to get off your ass, and you need to give an opportunity for people to disclose the things that are hidden by security clearances, which are a lot. There is a lot of information that is being hidden by security clearances, things that should not be classified, that are absolutely overclassified, and they are hiding it specifically because there is no route for a whistleblower to bring classified information. If you do, there's a decent chance you go to jail for it. And it is the American people's information, and it is obviously overclassified, but it is marked as such, and they are going to be held accountable. And they showed it with President Trump. If they can go after Trump, after stuff that he had the ability to declassify, they can definitely go after some poor bastard who works for the FBI. Everybody's got a job to do. And if you've been doing the right thing, I'm preaching to the choir. We're going to push on just a little bit here. Let's do a little bit of story time. Let's talk about, uh, first of all, I want to say thanks to my folks at Catholic Vote. They did bring this to my attention last night. They did text me and said, we need to go on the offensive and start making this known. And I intend to. I will be available for anything. If there is a news organization that wants to hear about what this looks like or why it's a problem, I'm happy to be there. I will make time on behalf of my friends at Catholic Vote who did this. Let's pull up the loop real quick, if you guys don't mind. This is the loop email. You guys know it. They're my friends. Uh, check it out. This will give you the inside scoop. Some of the inside scoop that I am getting. This is Wednesday's edition of it. It showed up this morning, nice and early. The number one thing on there is issue one fails in Ohio. All right. We're going to be talking about that as well. And that is why it is so important that we defend the Republic, not the so-called democracy, which is trash. We don't have a democracy. There's a federal judge upholding trans bathroom policies. You can read about that. 
Iowa schools, choice program moving forward. That seems like a net good. There's a couple other things. They're talking about uh, Governor Abbott here in Texas protecting women's sports. There's a lot of culture war that is going on, and there's a lot of people that are writing about it. It's hard to keep track of all of it. This is one way you can do that. You can do it by signing up for the vote, uh, the uh, the loop. So go to catholicvote.org, catholicvote.org. Type it in. You don't have to be Catholic. You don't even have to be Christian if you're generally conservative and you got a problem with what's going on in this country. This is a good curated news feed. It'll hit you with the high points of what happened over the last day or so. And it catches stories that I don't see because they got a team and I don't. So check them out. Type in your email address. Type in your zip code. Good to go. Catholicvote.org. Check them out. All right. Let's push on. I'm going to continue on here. So a little bit of story time. Uh, Ryan, if you'll pop up uh, topic number three, the picture we have there, I'm going to show everybody a little picture of what I was doing in 2020. This was from September. It's my friend Dave. I blocked out his face because he doesn't need to be part of this. You can see the beard. We were at an In-N-Out um, about 90 minutes south of Portland. We went to Portland because there was civil unrest in the streets. We left the civil unrest in Washington, D.C., and we went to it across the country. And why is that relevant to what we just talked about? It's relevant because one, the Portland field office was involved in this Catholic product and that should steam your blood. And two, Portland is dysfunctional like so many other FBI field offices because they put terrible people in leadership positions that do not have any leadership skills. I used to always say, I don't have a chain of command in the FBI. There's only a chain of management and the chain of management is weak and they don't know how to do leadership because none of them know how to do the right thing when it's complicated or difficult. They are unwilling to say the thing that is uncomfortable. Our uh, producer emeritus, pr producer Phil, used to always say that anybody in the government that's a GS-15 or above is someone who's never said no to a bad idea. That's certainly the case in the FBI, and I'm sure it's true in DOJ as well. A GS-15, that's the top of the scale when it comes to the regular scale of pays. This is the highest of the so-called rank and file, if you will. They are a second-line supervisor for FBI agents in the field. That assistant special agent in charge level, the GS-15 has never said no to a bad idea because you got to say yes. That's the only way that they keep going. So there's me in Portland in September. And why were we there? Because the federal government failed to do its job and wrap up about 50, maybe 100 tops of violent extremists that were running around through the streets, throwing explosives at federal agents and assaulting federal buildings. If you want to uh, scroll a couple of the pictures that we have, Ryan, you can do that slideshow, which should be topic number four. You don't have to show me on the screen. We'll just talk about it a little bit. I went out there specifically to target Antifa types. And I've probably told the story before, but I'm not sure if I've done it on my podcast. I've told it to other people. And the story goes like this. We landed. We drove over to the field office. We went in. What we found out was that the special agent in charge of that field office was not running the field office investigation into Antifa. They brought in another special agent in charge, and I've never heard of that. And this person came in to run an investigation and a command post. And the second in command of that command post was a lawyer. It was an attorney who was making sure that we were being very, very nice to the people. And they said, and I quote from this briefing, Antifa is an idea. We love our political activists in Portland. And, um, you know, you need to be respectful. We don't want you getting out of the car. These are some of the pictures that you're going to see right now that I took when I was walking outside of my hotel in downtown Portland. And does it look crazy? No, there was a sign at this restaurant we went to that said, stop killing black people and a list of all these random black names that have nothing to do with each other and had totally different circumstances. Almost all the buildings had scaffoldings or they had uh, some type of uh, tarping, keeping away because all the ground level glass was broken. You can see here, there's going to be some cardboard and there's going to be some plywood that was trying to keep these things. They had sliding wooden doors, like a freaking medieval moat trying to keep us from doing that. And this picture is uh, tilted a little bit, but what you're seeing there are people that were standing in the, the parking lot of the hotel I was in. They were carrying swords made out of rebar and hatchets and sleeping on the ground, burning fire. And this is one of our subjects. This was known as the snack van. You can see all the crazy stuff on here. This is a little bit of a picture that's turned over, but this was a sign from the local community. And this is part of the problem, America. They wanted it. They always wanted it. This was signs where we were doing surveillance that said, federal goons, go home. They wanted us to leave because they wanted what they had. And that's what it looked like for miles and miles and miles on every single island. There were just tents, people living in squalor all over the place. We went there to go investigate the so-called idea of Antifa. We identified a number of subjects and none of those people have been prosecuted as far as I know. Some of them engaged in violence with local police officers on nights when we watched them. We had them dead to rights with what they did. We could testify to it. We saw it either through night vision or binoculars. We were watching them happen in real time. Those people were arrested by local Portland Police Bureau. They were interviewed by FBI agents and then they were let go. And as far as I know, none of them were, were, were ever prosecuted. And that is a major failing. That is a failing of the FBI as a whole. 
And what I also found out was that the agents who were running these cases had not come in from the field office because they were scared to investigate people where they lived. They were scared to do their own freaking job as armed federal agents in Portland. They were terrified of what might happen to them. And so what did they do? They brought in what they call TDY, temporary duty agents who came in and investigated the cases so that they could go back home and not be targeted by these Antifa types because we knew that we weren't going to do anything about it. And we left guys like the Border Patrol, BORTAC teams that came in to secure the federal courthouse there. We left them on the lurch and none of those, those were prosecuted in any meaningful way. Lasers shined in their eyes. You saw explosives thrown at them. Most of us remember the 100 nights of riots. And where we're going with this is what happened to Andy No. If you'll bring up uh, topic number five. Topic number five is just a little bit here. It's about, this is from The Independent. This is a, a European paper that is reporting on it. And what are they saying here? Sorry about that. Let's put this up. They said, I don't know if anyone was ever going to see me again. This is a sympathetic piece written about John Hacker. He's the one who said that. I don't know if anyone was ever going to see me again. John Hacker had a laser that landed on him, identifying him right before he was grabbed by several armed men in an unmarked van. That's how he operated. Heavily armed, camouflaged people. They were out of Bortac, as far as I could tell. He's an activist and a citizen journalist standing in the park, 170 feet away from the courthouse. By the way, they wrecked that park. That park was a war zone. They had uh, a, a big statue of an, of an elk, and it was made out of bronze, and it was burned until it melted, and they put up this skeleton that looked like the most ghoulish thing you've ever seen. So at 3.40 in the, in the morning, he was uh, grabbed because agents were able to identify what he was involved in. And I assure you, if they grabbed him, it was almost definitely because he was physically involved in violence. And that shouldn't surprise anyone because he was also involved in identifying Andy No and having him brutally beaten. So there's that. So this whole story talks about what happened in Portland. You can see the picture. There was uh, the American flag. I don't think so. Turn that upside down because America was in distress. That was a general insurrection and it lasted forever. It lasted for a hundred nights. Imagine a hundred nights of being absolutely brutalized by a small minority of people and having no ability to fight back and seeing your law enforcement being able to just have their hands tied behind their back and fighting with their noses, essentially. I went to pararescue in doc. I don't talk a lot about what I did in the military because it's not that important. But what I did do is I got drowned every day for about a hundred days in a row. And it's one of the most difficult things. It's not because it's really hard to be drowned. It's not really hard to do water confidence moves where they put you and they try to thrash you for two minutes underwater or make you swim 50 meters with your uniform on or all the things that we did in our pre-dive tactics. That's not really hard. It's doing it every single day, knowing that it's going to be just as bad the next day and again and again and again. And that's what these people did in Portland. That's what these men did for Bortac. They showed up. They tried to hold the line and keep things from going crazy. And they were absolutely betrayed by the FBI, and they were betrayed by the federal government as a whole that did not prosecute it because the prosecutors who live there refused to do their damn job. They refused to go after these people. All right. And I say that as someone who sat there in the car and watched them. So John Hacker just made news. There's another uh, article, which I won't show up on here, but it's from the Washington Examiner. This was actually from um, August 4th of this year. So that first one just came back from 2020. It's a, it's a step back in time. Uh, I don't think we have the, the uh, oh, yes, we do. The Washington Examiner, topic six, if you pull that one up. This just came out. This is Brecken Thies, an investigative reporter over at Washington Examiner, do pretty good work. Austin, uh, August 4th, just this last week. Portland lost $1 billion as residents flee homelessness and crime. And Portland asked for this. They wanted this. They've lost a billion dollars in tax revenue because residents are leaving and they're taking their tax dollars with them between 2020 and 2021. They hemorrhaged 14,257 people filing taxes, and the net result was a billion dollars in revenue to that city. And it's known as the fastest shrinking city in America. Certainly the fastest shrinking large city. And what does that mean? What does that mean to the average person? What it means is the people that live in Portland voted for this, and they got it, and the few people that are stuck behind enemy lines are leaving. And that is the case for all of you that live in New York, that live in Philadelphia, that live in New Jersey, uh, more broadly speaking, if you live in a blue state and you think that you are stuck there, you're in the Alamo and the odds are worse than the Alamo. And everybody died at the Alamo. I don't know if you know the story. Texas history may not be something everybody learns, but you know the name. Not everybody got out of the Alamo. Very few. Women and children. Just a couple. That's what you're in right now. You're in the Alamo. And if you don't think so, when I watched a woman who was involved in violent riots that had organized those riots who had thrown explosive devices at cops, arrested and released after inter being interviewed by the FBI. 
That same night, I also saw a lesbian couple living in a house that I looked up on Zillow that had a net worth, at least the, the house was worth at least $650,000, which is not cheap. And it was in an urban area and it was right down the street from the Portland Police Bureau's um, Union Hall, which was set on fire many times and it was set on fire that night. They were people that had invaded a 7-Eleven, climbed up on the roof of a small business and were throwing explosive devices at the police union hall. And the police were simply trying to keep these people from falling into the neighborhood. They weren't protecting the, the union hall. They weren't protecting the 7-Eleven. That was already gone. There was a riot that was happening and this weird street party happening in the middle of a parking lot. And those police were just simply keeping people from going into the private residences, which is where I was sitting. I was watching this from feet. Literally, I could roll my window down and listen to it, which is what I heard. And these women, and they were a lesbian couple, and they were heavy set, as you can imagine, kind of butch-looking women with short hair. And they were drinking some fancy frou-frou drinks sitting on their beautiful porch in their front yard, which was manicured and had a nice garden, were yelling at the police officers. And they said, don't you wish you could just go home and be with your families? Why are you here? Don't you, you, know, don't you have any respect for people's rights to, to be upset? And don't you have any respect for this, uh, for this protest? They were chastising the police that were keeping their houses from being burned. And if you live in Portland and your house burns and you kept it there, it's your fault. 100%. You need to move out of that city right now. You need to not live in that city. You need to not tolerate that city. I don't care how pretty it is. You are living behind enemy lines and you're making a choice. So that's what my white martyrdom is. You step up and you leave. You become part of the billion dollar loss. That's the only way that these people are going to be able to do it when they run out of money. And they'll go to the federal government. That's all by design. We talked about it uh, in a couple shows ago. They're going to surge that, that local resource and they'll ask the federal government to step in and, and, and they can. But you can't be part of it. You can't contribute to it or you're part of the problem, just like these FBI agents that won't keep their won't keep their oath, that won't say what needs to be said. It's really troubling. And all this leads to the fact that uh, if you bring up topic number seven, we had uh, John Hacker, this guy that we talked about who was uh, grabbed very briefly. There he is. You can see him on the screen right now. He's a burn victim. So I'm sure people uh, feel a lot of sympathy because he lives with that face. Unfortunately, he has the soul and the uh, and the personality and the uh, the internal ethics to match a face like that, it turns out. This uh, article, if you're not watching, it says breaking alleged Antifa attacker John Hacker testifies in tears during the Andy No trial, confesses to the attack, admits to working with journalist Sergey Almos, who was a pro-Antifa journalist. And, um, and the answer was, is that Andy lost his case. Now that comes from just what, yesterday? Yeah, from the post-millennial. So that's Andy No's newspaper. So uh, this was written by Katie Daviscourt. She's of Seattle, Washington. She's one of their writers. Now we're going to bring up what happens to her for reporting on this story. We'll bring up video clip number two real quick, Ryan. This is what happens when you go and you report. She was actually physically threatened in the courthouse. And this is what happened to her vehicle because we have lost control of the narrative. We've lost control of the reins and we've let these people, and there's not very many of them, take over an American city. You want to talk about what an insurrection looks like. It looks like this. Go ahead and roll that clip if you want. If you're not watching our Rumble channel, what you are seeing or what you are missing is there is a, um, a vehicle. It's a white SUV. It has every single window bashed out. It has the uh, cords and the electrical stuff that were her chargers that are strewn all over. They are, um, there's broken glass all over the place. All the, all the doors are open and um, it's absolutely disgusted. Like it's disgusting to see what happened to it. It was targeted and it was specific. Ryan, we lost our video here for a second. So what happens in that case? We see that Andy No, who was beaten, who was assaulted. You guys can see the videos of it. I've sat with Andy No. He's a very small man. He's a very nice man. He's incredibly soft-spoken. He's a sweet human being. He's very gentle. And he is without fear when he goes out there and reports on this stuff in many ways. But he's not a physically strong person. And he was bullied and beaten by a bunch of cowards who wore masks. They trapped him in a hotel. I can't even remember if we added a video of that. I don't think we did. Um, we'll tweet it out. No, not, we didn't. Yeah, if you're not following me on True Social, if you're not following me on uh, on uh, Twitter, please do. At Kyle Serafin. We'll put some videos out there. I'll, I'll share some Andy No clips. Andy is one of these really nice people. He reached out to me right away. He was fascinated with the story that I told. And it's not the story that he got from the FBI in Portland. That's not shocking. All right. And so... We have this country that is that is awash in a local government that is refusing to do its job, asking for the federal government to come in, and the federal government fails to do so. Let's talk about um, let's talk about topic number uh, 
Number 11, if you would. Let's just go right to 11. This is the story of what happened in Ohio. There is a concerted push right now in Ohio to make things less like democracy and more like a republic. And this is important. Now, CNN is very excited to report that the Ohio voters rejected the effort that would make it harder to amend the state constitution. Why would they be excited about that? What they are, are not saying is in any meaningful way is who was actually trying to block this effort. And the group was a, uh, a coalition of people called One Person, One Vote. That sounds okay. We're sort of okay with that. We like the idea of representation in this country. That was a big deal. Um, it was also run by a leader of Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, which we all know is a euphemism for abortion, which is killing babies. And so why are these people trying to stop a constitutional amendment, a uh, sorry, a, a vote issue to raise the threshold for constitutional amendments? And the reason is because it's very hard to amend your constitution. It's supposed to be. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to make it from a simple majority to a threshold of 60%, a super majority, if you will. The goal of this particular issue one was to raise the ability and make it more difficult to amend the state constitution because what happened is Ohio passed a law saying that they were going to ban abortion after six weeks, which is essentially a place that we can all sort of start with as an original idea of this is a, an okay idea to, to stop abortion. We're going to stop it at six weeks. The idea being abolition in totality, but maybe incremental steps. This is a win for the people that love babies. And what's going on is they think that they're going to be able to pass a constitutional amendment that will allow them to legalize abortion per the state constitution. And that would, in fact, outlaw what they just did in the uh, in the legislatures in Ohio. And so they want what's called the tyranny of the majority, a 50 percent of the vote plus one person. Imagine if you had 100 and you broke it 50-50, as long as you were 51-49, you become the tyranny of the majority. You will now tell everyone except one person that is equal to you in all except one. One body on the other side of the scale is enough for you to change the Constitution in Ohio. This was probably a, a failure on their foresight, but they did it, and that is what they are trying to correct right now, and that lost. And that's a victory for CNN because CNN is cheering on democracy. They love democracy, but we don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic. And that is, in fact, the title of this show. It's a republic if you can keep it. So let me bring this thing up right here. This is a, a, an article that was written. I didn't put it in the uh, in the notes here, but I'll read it right off my screen. It's a republic if you can keep it. Is it a it's a uh, quotation that is ascribed to Elizabeth Willing Powell talking to Benjamin Franklin uh, per the journal of James McHenry, who was one of the delegates at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, McHenry was from Maryland, died in 1816 and supposedly stated that this was the conversation that happened as Benjamin Franklin left the Constitutional Convention when she said, well, uh, she says, uh, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. That's, that's the apocryphal story. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, but it's certainly the instinct of what was going on. And that is the, the problem right now with what has happened in this country in so many ways. We've lost our understanding of what federalism is. I know Dan Bongino has talked about this. They've made excuses for what Marjorie Taylor Greene said about the national divorce, the idea being that we should return to our federalist principles. There's a couple things I want to scan through here. And if you'll pull up, I think we actually have Federalist 51. If you'll pull up topic number 12, you'll see Federalist 51. This was written in 1788 as they were arguing for the ratification of the Constitution. And I believe this one was written by Madison. Um, it's to the people of the state of New York. These were all a series of letters making public arguments in, in order to support the federalist system. And there's really, really important stuff in here. Most of us have not read them. So your homework, if you listen to the Kyle Serafin show and you would like to participate in a space a week from today, we'll give you plenty of time to do it. Read a federalist paper, send me an email via the contact form at kyleserafin.com. Tell me which federalist paper you'd like to talk about. And we will have you as one of the speakers on our space to explain a federalist paper and a position on federalism and why it was important and what the major takeaways are because people need to understand what their government was designed to do. So we're gonna, we're gonna touch on a couple of pieces here. I want you guys to be aware as you listen to this. It says, there were, uh, we're just gonna quote a couple of little pieces, if you will. It says, were principle rigor, uh, rigorously adhered to, it would require that all appointments for the Supreme Executive, Legislature, and Judiciary magistracies should be drawn from the same foundation of authority, the people through channels of having no communication uh, whatsoever to each other. There's a lot of stilted language in this. We're going to break it down. Essentially, the argument in Federalist 51 is that 
The government is divided against itself. It has members of each department, should be as little dependent as possible on those of the other. There needs to be a separation of powers. This is an argument for that. Their executive magistrates or the judges, they, they cannot be independent of the legislature if their independence is only nominal. That there is a great security against the concentration, the, the gradual concentration of several powers. They actually knew as they drafted this constitution that the inherent instinct is to centralize things. This is what we call the administrative state. This is the so-called deep state. This is the people that come together that have similar goals because they all work for government. And this is the problem with an FBI that doesn't have people of honor working in it because they all start adhering to the same principles. They all think the same way. Nobody throws the BS flag and everybody involves themselves in eventual tyranny. It says, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interests of man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. There must be a reflection on human nature. They understood that human beings tend to encroach on things. And the other thing that they understood, which I'm going to read an entire paragraph, this is the most central paragraph of Federalist 51, and I'll read it directly. There are, moreover, two considerations particularly applicable to the federal system of America, which places that system in a very interesting point of view. First, in a single republic, all of the power surrendered by the people is submitted to the administration of a single government, and the usurpations are guarded against by division of the government into distinct and separate departments. These are the checks and balances. In the compound Republic of America, the power surrendered by the people is first divided between two distinct governments, and then the portion allotted to each subdivision among the distinct and separate departments. Hence, a double security arises to the rights of the people. The different governments will control each other, and at the same time, each will be controlled by itself. And second, it is of great importance in the Republic, not only to guard the society against the oppression of its rulers, this is really critical, but to guard one part of society against the injustice of the other part. Different interests necessarily exist in different classes of citizens. If a majority be united against a common interest, the rights of the minority will be insecure. This concept is known as the tyranny of the majority, and this is what Ohio has basically voted to uphold. The tyranny of the majority is that you have a slight edge. We are seeing it in the Senate right now. They have a 50-50 split, and Kamala Harris creates the tyranny of the majority. Everybody is in direct opposition with equal weight except one person, and that allows you to move forward things. This is why Democrats are claiming we have a democracy. Democracies always fall victim to the tyranny of the majority. A republic has safeguards, which you just heard. The government is divided against itself and the people are insulated from the tyranny of the majority. That is why we have an electoral process. That is why we have an electoral college. It removes the ability of one side to, to act tyrannically over another that it disagrees with just a little bit. Just a little bit. It has to be a supermajority in order to do it. The fundamental promise of America is this that the majority rules and the minority is protected. Those are the American values in a very simple way. That is what Federalist 51 says. You have to understand that if you walk in this world. And when you hear them talk about the attack on our democracy, they are trying to undermine that exact thing. The thing that I just said is so critical. We protect the minority. You don't have to agree with Islam, but you have to defend its ability to exist. You don't have to agree with people who are LDS. But you have to allow them to exist. They have to have space to practice their religion. All of these, you don't have to agree with atheists, but they have to be allowed to have no religion. They have to have it. We have to be able to insulate the minority from the tyranny of the majority. If you walk away with nothing else, that's where it is. All right. I'm going to play a comedian here because sometimes the only way that we can experience a little bit of truth is through comedy. And so, and a little bit of a lighthearted note in a very serious topic, we're going to play uh, video cut number three. Many of you already know this. But I want you to think about how cheap the freedom and liberty and your own decisions and your own thought processes were undermined in 2020 and 2021. And the FBI was not an exception to it. It was, in fact, a cultural problem. And this goes all the way down to an, a comedian from Australia. Go ahead and roll that clip. We'll comment in a second. I regret having gotten the vaccine. <laughs> I really regret having gotten the vaccine. I'm sure it's fine. But I just wish when the state 
something, I'd be the sort of person who said no. But it turns out I'm the sort of person who says, fine. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what's going on. You're telling me it's important. Okay. I, and all they had to do was say, you won't be allowed to go into pubs for like a month. And I was like, put it in me. <laughs> That's what I'm upset about is that I had a principle temporarily. <laughs> Like, well, why, oh, if I was in Nazi Germany, I would have stood up to the regime. I wouldn't stand up to not being able to go to a pub for a month. <laughs> I would be like, Anne Frank, she's in that attic. There, I saw her. It doesn't matter what the point of principle was. The point is I would have been a chill. <laughs> and that, I have to live with that for the rest of my three or four more years before I have a heart attack. <laughs> All right. So that's funny. It's comical. And people are laughing, and they know it's true. And I'd like you to bring up topic number nine, if you would, Ryan. This is a tweet that I actually found the other day. I read it to my father. It was impactful for me. I'm going to share it with you. Sometimes people send things that are quite interesting to me, and I want you to be able to hear this in its entirety. It said, shortly after COVID started in July of 2020, my father died. This is uh, coming from an account at SC Mountain Goat, Santa Cruz Mountain Goat. Before I ended the call with my stepmom, who called me uh, to tell me that my father collapsed, my girlfriend had already packed the car. She knew what to do, and I didn't need to say anything. By the time I hung up the phone, he was gone, and we drove immediately to Washington. This is Washington State. Not for the funeral, but for whatever it is that we did during COVID when a loved one died. I got to say goodbye to him in an empty room full of chairs with one occupied casket. It was unfitting for how good a man my father was. And poof, just like that, he was gone, and we drove home. And it never really hits you until later, and it's usually when you're not expecting it. But there's another story from that time. One of the more memorable things from our trip was stopping to get gas on our way through Oregon. Forgetting that you're not allowed to pump your own gas in Oregon, I began to get out of the car. For those of you who have never driven through New Jersey on the turnpike and actually try to pump your own gas, this is a very common experience. If you've done it in Oregon, you'll have the same. I don't understand this, this attitude, but it tells a lot about what people are. With half of my body hanging out of the door, the attendant quickly ran up to me and asked what I was doing. And at that point, I said, I'm sorry, I forgot you're not allowed to allowed to pump your own gas in Oregon and all the while trying to force through a smile, not realizing that he's angry. This man just lost his father and this guy's yelling at him. He's trying to smile. And from beneath his annoyed masked face, he asked me, quote, oh, so you're not from Oregon. Why are you traveling out of the state during a global pandemic with his liberal Oregon condescending accent? End quote. Uh, he continued to demand that I get back in the car, but not before taking my credit card after being face-to-face -face with me and no further than two and a half feet away. COVID brought the authoritarian out of so many people. He wasn't scared of COVID. He was asserting some sort of dominance. And here we are at a gas station in Eugene, Oregon. And the gas station attendant feels like he has the authority to question where I'm traveling, why I'm doing it, and demand that I get back in the car. And he didn't do it out of fear. It wasn't if he was scared because he wouldn't have approached me at all. He would have been very careful to keep his distance. He did this because he was given the smallest amount of authority and it made him cruel. And this is how people behave before the vaccines became available. This is how people behaved before they were calling for doctors and nurses and hospital staff to be fired for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. And this is how they behaved before they were calling for the forced COVID-19 vaccinations within the military. This is how they behaved before the president of the United States tried to take away the livelihood of every American that refused the COVID-19 vaccine that worked for a company with 100 employees or more. And it was never about science and it was never about your health and it was never about safety. It was always about your compliance. I'll read it again. He did it in all caps. It was always about your compliance. We cannot forget how people behaved during COVID. And more importantly, we can never let people forget how they behaved during COVID or that they will do it again. And so I'm here to remind everyone, and they will continue telling their story. If you guys want to go to his feed, you can tweet back. This is a, uh, There's a picture of the guy's father who was playing guitar with the Grateful Dead at one point in 1991. Seems like a nice guy. He looks kind of like Mike Rowe. We can never forget that this was about compliance and they got the compliance they needed and they got it out of the FBI and they got it out of the federal government and they got it out of the local police officers that didn't say no. You have been warned, all of you. You were given a test and many people were found wanting. Just like this comedian who's making fun of the fact that he was willing to get a shot. I don't care if you got the shot. There's a lot of people that got it when they weren't told to. Do whatever the hell you want with your body. But when you start making demands on other people and say, how dare you not be reasonable? I have a friend from the FBI that I haven't spoken to since I said I wasn't getting the shot. He said that I was killing his mother who had health problems. And we haven't spoken since. 
And I took that guy into my house when he needed it. We took him out to dinner when he was troubled. I helped him um, when he was in emotional states that were tough. He's a veteran. He's a good person. I think he's a good man. So many of our friends and family did this sort of thing. And we need to be aware that they have to have a path to redemption. We cannot condemn them roundly, but we have to make sure that they understand that that's the way that they acted. And we have to do it in a loving and compassionate way. And that is going to be the biggest challenge that goes forward in the next two years. A hundred percent because we can tolerate no more of this compliance. You cannot comply your way out of tyranny, and the people that are in the FBI that I am talking to right now, I am looking you in the eye and telling you, you cannot comply your way out of tyranny. You wait for the crocodile, they get you last, but you're gonna get eaten. So knock it off and start getting to work. You need to undermine the capabilities of an agency that is that is abusing this constitution and is using the tyranny of the majority to go after the people in this country that are the very slight, super minority. They make up almost everyone minus one. It's a terrifying prospect, and it is un-American. We could do better. We have to do better. All right. That's a pretty emotional show, folks. I know you've been listening. I really appreciate it. I know that some of you are going nuts in the live chat. I'll go back and read what I can. Uh, this is streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas. There's a reason why I think this hill is important, the Hill of Liberty. This used to be a place where you could go out in uh, in Texas, and you'd be away from a lot of things. We are in the suburbs now, but we are still far enough away that Antifa can't march on us. Um, because we're a small town. Now, like Jason Aldean said, you can't try that stuff in a small town, but you better hold that line, people, because it's coming for you. We do want to thank all of you for listening, especially all of you that are going nuts in the chat. I know you guys were getting riled up. I saw it. <laughs> There's the super chats right there. We can try to touch a couple of them. Let me just try to read off. Uh, suspendable train started. Everybody's on board. I heard a choo-choo. Smash the like, everybody. Disband the FBI. Send the honorable people. If there's any left to other agencies, we agree with that. Do not sit down. Do not comply. Uh, Congress, get off your ass and do something. Traditional Catholic suspendables, all true. Can't be the caboose. Mine's too small, says Rose. Thanks, Rose. Um, Kyle the hell up. That's from our buddy Eric Jason. Mama Jean says we're on fire. The FBI is damaged, and it needs to be thrown in the rubbish bin of history. That's all true. Everyone watched this video from FBI. Panty Raid listed a, a YouTube on there. You can go check those out. Appreciate them for all the suspendables, what they do for our country. That's from Miss G. Shout out to Ryan and Eric, who pump up the live chat every day. Much respect to Kyle. I missed the bottom of it. You guys are all nuts. You're all out there. We really appreciate it. This is what it's about. You need to share this message in a loving way. It's hard to do it. I'm not mad at them for what they did. I'm mad at them for what they continue to do. I really am. I am so disappointed with it. So let's move forward with that. Say thanks to all of you, all you listeners. You guys are great. You really are. The people that have joined as monthly supporters, you can go and hit the subscribe button on our channel. We just got our first check. I'll just let you know because I'm always transparent about it. This is our first check from Rumble, uh, which is really cool. We've been doing this since September, I think, or since November of last year. Got a check for 700 bucks or so. Can't complain about that. It's actually starting to generate a little bit of revenue. It's not YouTube money, but man, it is really cool. We're going to use that to support what we're doing, support uh, technology upgrades that Ryan needs and things like that. So thanks so much for watching this and sharing it around. We do appreciate it. Almost 650 reviews, five-star reviews like this one here. This one comes from Cliffy109 from Friday. It says, drain all of it. Everything you thought might be possibly wrong at the FBI is actually true. I had suspicions and hints about how bad it was, but I started listening to this podcast and it made me realize that if anything, it's worse than I thought. And it isn't limited to the FBI either. Kyle has enough guests and topics to make me realize exactly what is meant by, quote unquote, the swamp. Our system is broken, badly broken. Men like Kyle didn't break it. They showed up to tell us where it's broken. God bless Kyle and his family and the rest of the suspendables. God bless you, Cliffy, for listening. I appreciate that. Cliffy's kind of a funny name. I like that too. But uh, all of you, all of you who are out there doing the right thing that know that you're willing to take on the hard work of doing the right thing when it may involve some cost, be white martyrs, be suspendable, all of you. That's your job. And do your homework. Go read a Federalist paper and tell me which one it is. And we'll do a space and we'll have a big discussion about it because knowledge is the power that goes on. This debate has already been held. It was done before. And so we must be uh, aware of it and we must know the points that were made by some very, very intelligent people. Uh, many of you know that our show is only possible because of the hard work and the capabilities of Ryan Matta, who's been out there killing it so far, bringing up all of our topics, making the slideshows, cutting the videos. Ryan, thanks so much for the hard work you do. You can follow Ryan at Ryan Matta Media. Matta spelled M-A-T-T-A. -T -T you can see his live stream if you wake up early. Starts at 6.30 Eastern time. It's a little early for me, but I caught a piece of it today. He works with Anna Perez and puts up a Wake Up America piece. So feel free if you're up early, if you're doing something in the gym and you want a little bit of information and get revved up. We cover some of the same topics in different ways. You can follow Ryan Matta Media on Twitter or Ryan Matta on uh, on YouTube. I'm sorry, on, on True Social. And then also follow our buddy Eric Jason over there on Truth. He's been uh, promoting the show. He's one of our moderators. He's always in the chat. He's the first guy in there. If he doesn't show, show up ever, we're going to have to go find his house and make sure he's okay. Uh, it's at Eric Jason on True Social. Appreciate you, Eric. Mr. Eric, is it? 
Eric, I need to know if that's your first oh, name or your first and middle name. One day you're going to tell me what that what that is, or if, that, if your actual last name is Jason. My wife had a uh, first name for a last name. I always thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> what do you got, Ryan? One more thing. I was going to tell him about the interview you just did yesterday. Let him know what's coming this week. Yeah, we've got a really hopeful interview. We just interviewed uh, Mickey Wilson, who did um, Plandemic 1, 2, and 3. I went into there not knowing exactly what I was getting into. Sometimes you don't know who you're talking to or what they're about. And uh, it turned out to be an incredibly long interview. We went almost three hours. And at one point he goes, are we still doing the podcast? Or are we just browing out here? It was uh, it was a really, really good conversation. I thought we were going to be talking about pandemics, and we ended up talking about fatherhood and hope and, uh, and certainty. I'll be real specific. He brought out some interesting points. He's an excellent thinker. And like so many people that didn't go to a long college to learn something, he's got a blue-collar experience that brought it there. A man with a background in advertising that's telling you exactly what the narrative was about and why. So keep stay tuned to this. If you're not subscribed to our channel, our shameless plug for it, you can always follow us and be in the live chat at uh, rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. We stream live every day of the week right now at 0930. That's 930 in the morning. Eastern time, or it's 8.30 here in Texas, America. Uh, God bless all of you guys. Thanks for listening to me uh, go off. That was an emotional kind of outlet. We'll see you again tomorrow on Thursday, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.